And now I will introduce today's program. One in five Canadians will experience a mental illness in his or her lifetime, be it an occasional bout of depression or a severe and permanent psychotic disorder. And the price is more than personal. The cost of mental illness to the Canadian economy in terms of health care and lost productivity is estimated to be $51 million, billion per year. And yet, we rarely speak of it. The fact is that we as a society still have trouble speaking publicly about the needs of people with mental health and addiction problems. And that's because it makes us uncomfortable. As the very quotable Bill Clinton has said, mental illness is nothing to be ashamed of, but stigma and bias shame us all. Today, with the help of our distinguished guests, we'll take a look at the issues surrounding mental health and mental illness. Dr. David Goldblum is the Senior Medical Advisor of Education and Public Affairs at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. He's also the Vice Chair of the Mental Health Commission of Canada and a Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. For many years, he has worked to educate his colleagues and the public about mental illness and the stigma, stigma that it carries. Before taking on his role as Deputy Director of the Schizophrenia Program at KMH, Dr. Kwame McKenzie was already a renowned expert on transcultural psychiatry in Britain. He's been senior lecturer in psychiatry at the Royal Free College and University College Medical School in London, and an advisor to Britain's Minister of State for Health. He is considered an international expert on the social causes of mental illness, and in particular, the relationship between discrimination and mental illness. Joining the doctors today is award-winning columnist Margaret Wente, Globe and Mail columnist Margaret Wente, who in her columns has written on a variety of public issues, including mental health and addiction. Those of us who have read Margaret's columns, and I can't imagine who hasn't, know that she has strong views and is both fearless and focused in expressing them. She's also a very good read. Today, we won't be reading Margaret, we'll be hearing from her as she leads our experts in a frank discussion of the myths of mental illness, myths and realities of mental illness. So, Margaret, over to you, and I invite our panelists up on stage to carry on that conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, let me just say a couple of words first about how pleased we all from the Globe and Mail are to be here. Uh, we ran a series last June called Breakdown. And uh, it was a long series on mental health done in close cooperation with David Goldblum and the people at CAMH. And I think it got just about the most overwhelming response of anything the Globe and Mail has ever done. Not surprising, really, because Mental illness is one of those issues that touches us all in one way or another, probably in many ways. And so, after that series, and based on some reader feedback and more work that we've been doing with David and folks at CAMH, we're going to do more. We have Breakdown 2, which starts on Saturday. It's going to run from this Saturday through next Saturday and all week. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it because the first series was a fantastic combination of science, insight, and real humanity. And I think this will be the same. 
So that's my plug, and now we'll get on with it. Am I on? You're on. Great. All right. Um, my first question has to do with stigma and public perceptions of mental illness. You know, we've, we've done a lot of work, you've done a lot of work around stigmatization in the last decade or so. You've got this fabulous campaign running now around depression with Valerie Pringle and other well-known figures telling their stories. I, I want to ask both of you, I'll start with you, David. What do you think has and hasn't changed in the last, over the last decade? Well, I think many things have changed and some things have still a great deal of distance to go. Uh, first of all, the fact that we're here at the Canadian Club having a discussion about this topic, I don't believe this would have happened a decade ago. Uh, there would have been many other eminently worthwhile topics, but mental illness, uh, mental health would probably not have been on the agenda of the Canadian Club uh, a decade ago. We wouldn't have had these elegant bar stools. And I will be singing a selection of Gershwin tunes. <laughs> and I think it's not simply this event, but really a collection of things that have happened. The creation of the Mental Health Commission, the Globe Series, the CAMH Transforming Lives uh, campaign of uh, well-known people across the province speaking very plainly and openly about their uh, personal or family struggles with mental illness or substance abuse. And so I think we are, to use that shop-worn phrase, at a tipping point. A tipping point of public acceptance, public acknowledgement that these are problems that affect every single Canadian family. And to that extent, the door has been opened and the level of literacy has been raised. But it has been raised only so far. I think we still have a great deal of distance to go. And if anything, those illnesses about which people can feel an immediate understanding or connection, things like depression or anxiety, have moved much further ahead in terms of public understanding than illnesses such as schizophrenia. Uh, which affect one in a hundred Canadians. So we have raised the level of awareness, the willingness of people to talk about these problems, and to some measure the level of understanding. What we haven't done, and in fact what is shown around the world, is address the issue of fear. Because fear of people with mental illness has actually increased if you look at worldwide surveys. So there seems to be a bit of a disconnect between raising the level of understanding and lowering the level of fear, as measured by something called social distance. How close you're willing to live with, work with, or socialize with somebody who has a mental illness. And so we've got a big challenge ahead of us around reversing that phenomenon which takes people who experience mental illness and puts them even further away pushes them to the margins. Quab, we were talking about this the other day, about fear and what people get wrong, some of people's misperception, misperceptions around other types of mental illness. I guess we're all kind of familiar with depression, the language of depression, anxiety. Those are easy ones. But what about other types of mental illness, such as schizophrenia, your expertise, psychosis? Why are we still so... What do we get wrong about... about um, those conditions. 
I mean, Why? I think, I think you're right. I think the, the change has been, as uh, David has said, and uh, it's uh, terrible to have to agree with him, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that has happened is that the stigma and fear of depression has decreased. Uh, but the stigma and fear of uh, psychosis has not decreased. It stayed the same and, and it's gone up slightly. And there are probably lots of reasons for that. One of the things that people try to think about all the time is they think about information. If you make people aware, things will just get better. But I don't think awareness is the only thing. Um, for instance, I mean, I like heart surgeons. Everybody likes heart surgeons. They're, they're lovely people and they do fabulous work. Um, and they're, they're good people. But if you look at, um, uh, 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 yeah, I say that even though they get paid a lot more than I do. Um, but uh, if you look at uh, their records, and there's a big study that did this in America, 110,000 people. They looked at heart surgeons and uh, cardiologists, and they looked at the way they treated people. And they moved people into two groups, people with a mental health problem and people without a mental health problem. Um, you know, what they found was that people with a mental health problem were less likely to get the right treatment, actually less likely to be prescribed the right treatment, and much less likely to be put forward for cardiac surgery. So we have good people doing bad things. And just to link to our title, where it got ugly, was that the, there were incredibly high rates of death amongst the people with mental health problems when they followed them up after a year. Now, these are not people who are unaware of mental health problems. They're doctors, they've been to medical school, they've had to do training in, or some training in psychiatry, or at least have some awareness of psychiatry. But we haven't been able to get them not to discriminate against people with mental health problems, and that's where the problem lies, I think. How do you, first of all, why? These are professionals, they should know better, but they're highly educated people. Um, where, where does that come from? Where does that, that sort of two-tier two treatment come from? And um, are there any ways that we're working on or that can be worked on to get people over that? Well, yeah, just to follow up on Quam's point, uh, we don't even, in case anyone was feeling sanctimonious about the Canadian healthcare system in contrast to this American study that Quam mentioned, we actually have a study from Nova Scotia which shows the exact same thing, that people with mental illness in Nova Scotia were much less likely to access cardiac care of a specialized nature than people without a mental illness. So the problem is local as well as international. And uh, the other thing to remember is that these are attitudes which form early. We now have very good data from the United States of a survey of thousands of children and adolescents about their attitudes towards people with mental illness. This is, this is really the first national survey of attitudes among children. And uh, when it came to uh, their views on depression, they saw depressed people their own age as being very dangerous. So that sense of danger associated with mental illness and, in fact, inappropriately associated with mental illness in terms of how likely it is for somebody with a mental illness to be dangerous, uh, that forms very, very early on. And I think it's one of the reasons that the Mental Health Commission of Canada, in its anti-stigma initiative, we have identified two populations we're going to focus on at first. One is children, and the other is health professionals. And, you know, I, I heard that the Minister of Health is coming to speak to this 
assemblage shortly, and I heard him say two weeks ago that his priorities uh, for his tenure are uh, wait times and access to primary care. And wait times, people tend to think about their eyeballs, their knees, their hips, and their hearts. They don't think about their minds, where the wait times are unfathomable. They range from months to years to never. And when it comes to access to family health care, there's no group that has a harder time finding a family physician and keeping one than people with severe and persistent mental illness. So we've got a lot of cleanup work to do in our own shop in terms of the health professions. And I say the professions because this is not exclusively about doctors. This is about the encounters that people with mental illness have with nurses, with clerical staff when they go to the emergency room. It's a big problem. And I think your deeper question is, why does this happen among smart people, or as Quam describes them, among good people. And I think both descriptors are apt. These people are in the main smart and good. And I think it has something profound to do with the threat that mental illness represents to everybody. That in contrast to all the physical injuries and illnesses that we see, there's nothing that threatens our individual sense of integrity and identity in the way that mental illness does. And so people put distance to protect themselves. And in that sense, health professionals are no different than every other member of society. Well, I think that's right. I think that's the uh, process of stigmatization. The first thing you do is you decide that uh, people are different. That's the first thing you do. Then you find, uh, so you label them. You label them as mentally ill or, or whatever. Then the next thing you do is you decide you're going to stereotype that so that not only are they mentally ill, but they're mentally ill and they're all the same and they're, say for instance, um, you need to be scared of them. Then you put some social distance between you and them because, I mean, that's what you would do if you've got a stigmatized group that you don't want anything to do with. And then you actively discriminate and that's how stigma works. So when you start thinking about what you're going to do about, say for instance, you cardiac surgeons, you have to start breaking it down because you look at the end point which is the discrimination but you have to work through the fear, you have to work through the social distance and you have to look, work through the labeling that goes on in order to disentangle what's happening and it's a, it's a tough thing to do. So you're saying that people with mental illnesses are automatically second-class systems in the second-class citizens in the healthcare system. In many, in many ways that you care to measure it, they are second-class citizens, although there are many uh, levers that you can pull to improve your, your stature, to improve your access. And so I don't want to get overly nihilistic about this, and I think lots of change, and change for the good, uh, is happening in ways that it didn't happen yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah, such as the openness of the conversations. That's right. I mean, the, I think we have to remember what tremendous legitimacy it confers when people who are well-known, well-established, talk in very plain language. We had the experience, this whole process got kicked off a decade ago when Michael Wilson spoke so candidly about his son's suicide. And he didn't use that, you know, died suddenly euphemism. He talked about his son's suicide. And that provided an opportunity for lots of people to talk about this issue because it's, 
4,000 individuals a year in Canada who kill themselves, but it stays under the radar. Kwame, I'd like to uh, turn for a moment to your expertise, one of your many fields of expertise. Cricket. Um, Cricket. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can talk about Liverpool, they're having a good season. And, uh... You're an expert in uh, mental illness among immigrants and, uh, and ethno-racial groups. Um, your experience is in Britain, but you've called Toronto a sort of great laboratory for your work. Um, we were talking the other day about how mental illness issues differ um, in different um, ethno-racial groups and among immigrants. And um, that's a fascinating, fascinating subject that we obviously need to know a lot more about in this country as an immigrant country. Can you tell us some of the things that we ought to know and some of the challenges that these issues pose to our mental health system? How long have you got? <laughs> <Yeah>. Two minutes? <laughs> Take three. Some of the things you'd, we need to know. Obviously, the um, immigrant and ethno-racial groups in uh, Toronto are diverse. And uh, the problems are as diverse as the groups. So there's not a one-size-fits-all to working out what one needs to do about it. If you are from a recent immigrant group and uh, you're a, you've been a refugee, then you're at higher risk of post-traumatic stress disorder and also higher risk of depression. And you can imagine that that's partly due to the reasons why you left your country of origin, to the actual process of migration, and then the loss of status when you come to uh, Canada. So all of those things need to be taken into account. Existing ethno-racial groups, so people who've been in the country for a while, have different pressures on them. They've got the pressure to succeed, and that pressure to succeed in the face of discrimination is a difficult thing to cope with, this idea of thwarted aspirations leading to depression and also leading to higher rates of other mental illnesses, especially psychosis. Um, but it's different for different groups. So if you look at the South Asian group, there are different rates of illness. And if you look at the African and Caribbean group, and if you look at Spanish groups, and um, you know, the, the wonderful thing about being here is everybody is in Toronto. And so with regards to uh, researching these groups, I have a sort of a, a work forever, I think. But um, if researching them was all I was here to do, then uh, that would be fine. But changing things is what uh, I'm about. Um, and that, that is going to be interesting. Um, usually changing the bottom up is going to be is, is interesting. And um, when you look around Toronto, and these are things that a lot of people wouldn't know, there are actually loads of ethno-racial service providers. There are people who are already doing it and uh, who are doing it well, who need support. There are people within CAMH who've been doing work on this issue for years but haven't really had the prominence and they need support. And some of the work that there's going to be is finding out the good practices and supporting them, finding out the gaps in service and uh, delivering that. Um, and then, of course because it's one of the things I do, trying to change public policy to allow people to really um, deliver high-quality services to a diverse group of people. So there's lots to do. Can I get back for a moment to um, some of the specifics of how mental illness may present differently in different ethno-racial groups? We were talking the other day, for example, about South Asian women and depression. 
Right. Well, one of the things that has, been in the, um, has always been in literature and has been in literature for a long time has been this idea that um, in, the, in the, I could say the West, but in uh, high-income countries, one of the things we do with depression is we psychologize. So we go to the doctor and we talk about our illness and we talk about feeling depressed. Now, actually, worldwide, most people do not to go to their doctor if they're depressed and talk about depression. It's an alien concept to a lot of people. People talk about not having heart or losing heart or thinking too much. And actually, worldwide, the most common symptom of depression is feeling tired all the time. So if that is the model that you use and you go into a doctor and you don't say, I'm depressed, you're more likely to have your depression misdiagnosed. And one of the things we found in the UK was that we found that South Asian women were actually in their GP surgery. They're more likely to be in their GP surgery. And they were about three times less likely to have their depression recognized. And some of that is just because it was being missed by uh, their GP, because the presentation was different. You've talked about, this, this is, um, let me get to a, another point where you have some very, very interesting things to say. And, um, for a long time in the, in the history of how the public perceives mental illness, we thought of mental illness as uh, socially rooted, rooted in social causes. You know, your family, your childhood, your bad mother, whatever. And then um, we went through a long period of switching over and seeing the um, roots of mental illness as genetic. Uh, it's in your brain, it's in your genes, it's in your, you know, maybe your, your horm hormones or your brain chemistry. But now... Um, Tell us a little bit about what new research is revealing about some of the interconnections between um, environment and brain that might give us sort of advance our, advance our understanding and also advance our treatment. Well, just to set the stage for this a little bit, uh, our field, like all fields, has been subject to incredible pendulum swings throughout its uh, more than 100 years of history. Uh, emphases have shifted by country or by dominant theory around what causes mental illness. And so we've had periods, for instance, around the birth of sociology and uh, uh, related fields where social theories in the 1940s and 50s became very popular. And in the wake of World War II and some of the horrendous experiments that were carried out, uh, carried out under Nazism, some of the biological theories, and particularly the genetic theories, became so abhorrent that they kind of went into quiescence. And then as we came out of the 60s and into the 1970s, there was a recrudescence of interest in the biology of the mind at a time of tremendous discovery and, and really the birth of neuro, modern neuroscience that allowed us to begin, and I would underline the word begin, to understand our single most complex uh, organ, the human brain. And we now live in a culture where uh, biology is dominant throughout health as a kind of deterministic model. And the danger is always in thinking that biology is destiny. And so we screen everybody for uh, genes for diseases X, Y, and Z, even though most of these genes don't tell us about our fate. They just tell us about our vulnerability. And the question is, what takes you from your vulnerability to
to whatever happens to you. And this allows us, when we think this way, to start thinking in a more integrative way about the relationship between nature and nurture. Anybody who's a parent here who's had one child believes profoundly in nurture. You believe that everything you have done for that child has shaped that child's psyche, temperament, makeup, and achievement. Unless, of course, you have a second child. <laughs> and then suddenly you discover nature. <laughs> and you find out, gee, I was the exact same parent. This kid is totally different from the first kid we raised. And in fact, you didn't raise them exactly the same way because the environment you create for a second child is different than the environment you create for a first child. But the point is that environment and biology, whether it's genetics or other forms of biology like neurochemistry, have a profound and intimate connection. And we can go into either prosaic or uh, elegant. Quam has most of the elegant examples. I'm stuck with the prosaic ones. But uh, these are profoundly interactive systems. And so what takes a gene and turns it on or turns it off in our environment is now perhaps the most exhilarating area of study uh, within neuroscience. So uh, I don't know if you want to give an elegant example because I... I have the prosaic ones. So. I think that was uh, elegantly prosaic. <laughs> <laughs> um, with regards to serious uh, and severe mental illness, such as uh, uh, psychosis, schizophrenia, we've always thought, that people have always thought that this is uh, purely biological illness. But what people have found, of course, is if there are two people with exactly the same genes, so identical twins, that if one of them has uh, developed... Uh, schizophrenia, actually the other one has only 50% chance of developing schizophrenia. So even if you've got exactly the same genes, there's something about the environment that changes your risk. And the interaction between those genes and the environment is where you know, I'm most interested <laughs> in looking. Because um, you know, most people who develop uh, a psychosis do not have uh, the, you know, a huge genetic loading. And for most people, it's environmental. And just to show that I'm really obsessed with uh, cardiac problems, and it wasn't because I listened to Dr. Peter Lynn talking about girth, and I realized that I was slightly overweight and that I actually needed to, 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 to lose some weight today, but just uh, to, to use the same model as one might use in cardiac disease, you may have a vulnerability to developing a cardiac problem, to developing a heart problem. But it's not the vulnerability that you, you can't do that much necessarily about the vulnerability. You can do something about what you eat, you can do something about the amount of stress you have, and you can do something about your exercise. You can do something about that. And that's why I'm really interested in the environment, because we may not be able to do anything about our genetic vulnerability to specific mental health problems, but we may be able to do something about the environment and our lifestyle and what we can do to protect ourselves. So I'm interested in prevention. One of the areas that you uh, know a lot about as well is the emerging relationships between um, minority group experiences, 
such as discrimination and vulnerability for mental illness. This is very provocative and very interesting and very important uh, for sure. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what the findings are there and what the, some of the thinking is around that issue? Well, there, there's quite a lot of research which is trying to look at the impact of racism and actually all sorts of discrimination on mental health. And it turns out that if you've been the victim of racism, you are more likely to develop depression and you're more likely to develop a psychosis. About two times more likely to develop depression, about three times more likely to develop psychosis. Now, it could be that if you, um, uh, you're more likely to uh, suffer discrimination because of your mental illness and you're more likely to um, say that that discrimination you've had because of your mental illness is really racial discrimination. And so to try and deal with that, we did a study, and this study was in Maastricht, where we took people, 5,000 people, and we looked at them and said, well, look, anybody who's got a mental health problem, I'm sorry, we're not going to follow you up. Anybody who's got a paranoid personality, we're not going to follow you up. We just want super well people. And we had 4,500 super well people. And then we said to them, tell me, have you been a victim of discrimination? Discrimination because of your age, because of your sex, because of racism, because of your sexual preference. Um, and we got a group of people who said yes and a group of people who said no. And then we followed them up for three years. And we found that the people who'd been victims of discrimination were three times more likely to develop a psychiatric, a psychological symptom over the next th three years. Yeah. So well people, victims of discrimination, more likely to develop psychological symptoms over the next three years. And we found that the more discrimination that there was, so if you discriminated by age, sex, and due to race, you were much more likely to develop um, uh, symptoms over a year. And there, there are loads of theories as to why this might be, why racism gets under the skin, how it gets under the skin, and how it causes psychological problems. Uh, these include thwarted aspirations, but they also include um, changes in your immune system and in your hormonal system. So the anxiety that you maybe uh, feel leads to changes in the way that your whole body clock is set. So you react more strongly to other, thw other times when you're thwarted. And this over a period of time leads you to more anxiety and more likely to have a serious mental health problem. But let, let me follow up Quam's point because I think it's, uh, this is a very intriguing uh, finding. But I want to say a word about relative risk because what Quam has talked about is a threefold increase in a risk for a problem. Which, and it's very important to confer that this is not uh, destiny. For instance, if your risk of developing a psychosis uh, like schizophrenia is one in a hundred people and your risk is tripled and it goes up to three in a hundred, that still leaves 97 people who haven't developed psychosis. So that the fine grain understanding has to be around, well, if these are some of the variables which dramatically increase your risk, because a threefold increase is dramatic, what is it colliding with in those individuals who go on to develop these difficulties? And similarly, 
What is it that is protective? You know, we have a natural reflex in healthcare to look at what makes you sick. And we less often look at what keeps you well. And we need to understand those factors so that it's not simply avoiding risk. Right now, you can take a tube of your saliva and send it down to the United States and pay, I think, $1,000 or $2,000 for an analysis of your genetic risk for everything within the limits of current knowledge. And a month later, you will get a printout, and you'll also have your last night of sleep. <laughs> Because it'll tell you you're a 12% risk of that, 4% risk of this. Uh, you know, the, the, it just lists everything. And this is, in some measure, dangerous knowledge to have because it doesn't get contextualized. It doesn't get contextualized in the context of who you are as an individual, and it doesn't get contextualized in terms of your own environment. And both of those contain both factors that put you at risk and, importantly, factors that protect you factors that keep you well. And I think that's, that is the point in that uh, we have been based on a deficit model. We've only really been looking at what makes you ill. And really we need to do more prevention and health promotion and look at what keeps you well. Um, so I'll get back to soccer again in a second. <laughs> <laughs> I could, um, I, I could, we could go on about this for hours and it is riveting, believe me. Um, we're very, very lucky to have both these men in Toronto, and especially Kwam, who just came here a year ago. Likes everything. Sort of more so Kwam, is what you're saying. <laughs> David, David gets jealous. Kwam <laughs> <laughs> is one of the leading experts in the field, and he doesn't like our winners, but we hope he'll stay anyway. But I have a fistful of questions here. So if you don't mind, I'll ask you one or two. Sure. All right. Okay. I have a couple on this one. Um, David, in the Globe and Mail series, the proponents of more openness regarding mental health concerns neglected to address the issue of how openness by an employee might affect attitudes toward them in the workplace. Can you talk about how a person can be open and maintain respect in the workplace? Well, this is a, this is a tough question because nobody likes to be the sacrificial lamb for a cause. Nobody likes to say, you know what, this is going to cost me hugely at a personal level, but I'm going to do it because I think it's right. Some people do do that, but a lot of people will opt to stay uh, silent. And I think that this really is not about so much of any one individual deciding to change the environment, but workplaces making a collective and concerted decision that they're going to change their environment. I probably do one talk a week in various workplaces uh, here in Toronto, whether it's uh, uh, banks or union halls or schools or government offices or oil and gas pipe fitters. It doesn't really matter because the questions are always the same. And it's about opening up the discussion. And it's often easier when they bring in an outside person who doesn't work there to simply precipitate the discussion. And what I've seen time and time again is that the most interesting part of those exercises is after I finally shut up and they start to ask questions. And then in the somewhat safer environment of this, they start to disclose their own experience. And what happens, and I've seen it time and time again, 
is one person in this safe setting of a lunch and learn starts to talk about their own personal or familial experience and then basically everybody in the room is talking about it. And that's how the entire Mental Health Commission got started through the Senate report, a group of senators deciding that they would talk about this nationally because it was an issue for each one of them personally. So I think that that process has to unfold at a more systemic level uh, in the micro context of an individual office group, workplace, assembly line, but it also has to happen nationally. I think the Globe series, and I've said this uh, to uh, your editor-in-chief and to everybody I've met at the Globe, the Globe series this past June did an extraordinary thing. It started millions of conversations across Canada, in workplaces, in schools, at family dinner tables. People started talking about and owning this issue, and once that door gets opened, I really hope it's hard to slam shut. Bit of a follow-up on, on that one. Um, question, again, about mental illness in the workplace. Uh, mental illness affects productivity and absenteeism in large corporations, but also in very small businesses. Businesses that don't have human resource departments, training, or financial resources to enable us to cope. Where can we go or what can we do to be able to, de to, be able to deal with employees and colleagues? Do you want to take that? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've only been here a year. <laughs> I, I might need a job. For and and what have you done? In <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that, yeah, it's a delivery time. Yeah. This, I mean, this is a huge challenge. Small stores, uh, small businesses, they can't afford uh, employee assistance programs or big human resources departments. So they're obliged to do what most Canadians do uh, when they make the decision to seek mental health care, which is to go to their family physicians, who are the first port of call for 60% or more of Canadians when they run into these problems. And they can't be expected to provide the network of supports that a bank or a major corporation provides. That being said, you know, I think we're fortunate to be living in one of the most wired nations on earth. And one of the things that the Mental Health Commission will be doing is creating a virtual national knowledge exchange center. And that will be providing all kinds of material, uh, not simply uh, education and support, but truly interactive material, that means that you don't have to have your own EAP program or HR department to access this kind of information. But at the same time as we leverage all that technology, uh, we also have to be mindful of the fact that it is human contact. It's personal stories that ultimately change uh, attitudes and hopefully change behavior. And so that in that mom and pop operation, there is still the opportunity for individuals to speak very plainly uh, about their difficulties and hopefully encourage people at the one-on-one -on -one human level to get the help they need. Another real world question. You're out. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're on a stool, David. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You're also on the hook yeah. as, a, as the deputy chairman, vice chairman of the Mental Health Commission. With the economy probably getting worse before it gets better, 
And I would add... <laughs> You've this. seen my portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> and with health care budgets, surely, uh, surely in line for some cutbacks, with cutbacks in services, which we all know are, are going to come, belts will be tightening further. Taking this into consideration, how can we get government and business to do more, not less? Where's the low-hanging fruit? Is there any? It is here, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> all right. First of all, I think we're actually very fortunate at the Mental Health Commission that the previous Minister of Health, Tony Clement, last August uh, extended our budget from five years to ten years of federal funding. So we're feeling uh, quite supported by the fact that we've got ten years' worth of federal funding to support the operations and work of the Mental Health Commission. But I think the answer to your question is uh, probably captured in two words enlightened self-interest. Whether it's for the government or for the business sector, this is the number one cause of disability in a postmodern, above-the-neck knowledge economy, and so that they can actually save money uh, by investing in mental health. We have very good evidence from the United States that enhanced treatment of depression for workers who are ill with depression actually accelerates their return to work and their productivity compared to routine treatment for depression. So we can make a difference in that way by investing. Similarly, the uh, group out in British Columbia, the Center for Applied Research in Mental Health and Addictions, has shown that if you build supportive housing for people with severe mental illness in British Columbia, you will save the government of British Columbia money save them on shelter costs, shave them, save them, you could also shave them, but you could save them on emergency room visits by uh, making it that much easier to engage people who are housed with appropriate health services. So I think you have to appeal to the economic bottom line quite apart from the human dignity bottom line and realize that people can save money by investing now. I mean, there's a human rights issue, obviously, but there's just a common sense issue which we've been talking to. And one of those uh, common sense issues is that we know that in a recession, uh, sorry, I use the R word. We're allowed to use the R word. It's not a recession here yet. It's a recession in England. It's a recession everywhere else, but not here yet. Um, um, it's a repression. It's a repression. <laughs> oh, my God, Freud. <laughs> I thought we'd get away from that. Um, um, but uh, in a recession, we know that people are under uh, stress. And we know that they uh, are going to actually need more rather than less in the way of psychological support. One of the interesting papers that uh, came out a few years ago was by a chap called Scott Weich in the UK, who looked at not poverty or unemployment, but looked at financial insecurity and found that financial insecurity hugely increased your chance of suffering from depression. So during a recession, and I've said it twice now, you see, once you've said it once, you feel more comfortable. Um, in a recession, this is exactly not the time to be cutting back on mental health services because the need will increase. Yeah. Thank you very much. Good point. Um, if you'd like to hear more from Kwam, and uh, I certainly do, uh, there will be a piece on him by me in Wednesday's paper with uh, more of his observations. And don't miss it. Sure. Oh, so don't, don't worry it's going about, to be uh, wonderful as soon as I write yeah. it. I can, <laughs> you know, um, 
just, uh, just with regards to my mental health, that nervous laughter didn't help me at all, right? <laughs> and if you'd like to discuss cricket, there's always afterwards. I'd like to thank you very, very much, and especially these two guys, for doing such great work and adding to our, our understanding. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, don't go away. Stay right where you are. Now I'd like to call on John Cape from the uh, director of the Canadian Club of Toronto to formally thank you for today's event. Uh, thank you, Dr. Goldblum, Dr. McKenzie, and, uh, and, and Margaret Venti. And thank you all for joining us today. Certainly, uh, mental illness is difficult to live with and not an easy subject uh, to discuss. Every person in this room uh, has been affected by mental illness to one degree or another. If not you yourself, uh, then one of your friends, your colleagues, or your loved ones. And even if you have not had any personal contact with a mental affliction, you have been affected by the damage done to the general health of our society. And while there will always be differing opinions when it comes to how those affected should be treated or regarded, one fact remains. We cannot, in what we proudly think of as a civil society, ignore those who live with mental illness or addiction, not if we value the health of our society. As Carl Jung, one of the fathers of modern psychology, once said, and I quote, there is no coming to consciousness without pain, end of quote. And we should all face that pain together. Thank you all once again. Thank you, John, and thank you again, David, Quam, and Margaret, and to all our guests for joining us today. This concludes our television programming, which is being broadcast on Rogers TV, and this meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>